Stacey Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. So here we are again, sitting in another 20s decade. Uh, I think a lot of people have expectations, or maybe at least they did before this pandemic hit, that we're going to go back and circle in on some type of existential merrymaking that we had in the 1900s version of it. Music, parties, uh, a sense that the world was burning, and so who cares? Might as well go down in a blaze of glory. I mean, maybe there is that again, only instead of a world war, this time it's a worldwide pandemic preceded by a, some kind of worldwide fever pitch that's going to happen with climate change. So if we're all just going to die anyway, might as well have a good time, right? So all of this is existential, but existentialism isn't necessarily a new philosophy, and it wasn't new to the 20th century where it really got its bearings either. Uh, but the existentialists of the modern era tend to be a little bit more atheistic in form, especially in our Western traditions, starting from the basic observable premise that life is suffering and unfair, but that much of that is self-perpetuated by our adherence to strictly human-imposed orders that don't actually come from reality itself. As a result, we make ourselves more miserable by trying to fit molds that are not of our own derivation. They're socially constructed and perpetuated. It's only once we leave behind our reliance on those roles that we realize that we're free of them and can decide. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean, though, that we have to leave them behind entirely, the social constructs. As long as we're choosing them ourselves to be a part of that social order, then it's fine. It just has to be conscious. But the problem that many people had with those social orders was that they were often unconsciously driven. It requires a subjective recognition of the importance of self over and against social order. It's a pretty individualistic philosophy, which helped it fit really nicely into literary form. Arguably the most famous poet of the era, T.S. Eliot, he began his career with some pretty existential poetry, like heard here from a selection of his poem, The Hollow Men. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpieces filled with straw. Alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rats feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow's skin, cross staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meaning in the twilight kingdom. This is the dead land. This is the cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkling of a fading star. Is it like this in death's other kingdom, waking alone at the hour when we were trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss, form prayers to broken stone? The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms. In this last of many places, we grope together and avoid speech gathered on the beach of the Tumid River. Sightless, unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose, of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men.
These hollow men, the men of modernity, represented in the images of scarecrows here, recognize that they lack substance, but they're okay with that. They accept it, and in a way, they want it. To rely on the wind to move them as men of the modern era would rely on society in the same way. It does not require any personal work or commitment. It is passive living. It's whim, environmentally forced and requiring no choice or responsibility from the subject, who never acts freely. We talk of this as slavery to the system, but it's sometimes quite willful and even consciously surrendered. To make this choice requires an initial choice to relinquish choice. And at that point, it is the surrendering of what makes us persons. To be fair, though, existentialism in this sense is a somewhat privileged philosophy. It requires a recognition and even the possibility of bodily freedom and a possibility of the social recognition of that freedom. Rather, it is a mental slavery that is brought into through the environment, but requires some ability to be recognized as a free person in general, even if not fully realized. So to then build a philosophy that says, hey, recognize yourself, make your own choices, free yourself of social control, it sounds well and good in a word where you'll be recognized as an equal. But does a conscious recognition of selfhood matter in a society where you're the only one who recognizes it? We have a similar conversation in my class over the personhood and identity recognition of the character Jim in Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Huck Finn occurs in the Deep South in the midst of slavery, and while it was written and published after the abolition, it was still received by a South who sensed the deep-rooted antagonism being drawn in Twain's text. It's not a mirror many particularly loved, but the discussion comes back to Jim, who, throughout the text, sees himself as a piece of property with a particular sum. His options are incredibly limited, and the fact that he has to put his faith in a white child leaves him in precarious circumstances. Very little action can come directly from Jim himself, so he takes a significant amount of risks in the way that he talks to Huck, his openness about his family and his plans for freedom, and even going so far as to scold Huck for mean behavior. But much of those humanistic elements of their relationship are what allow for Huck to begin recognizing, though perhaps unconsciously, I mean, he still does say that Jim is white inside, that Jim is a person when he exhibits traits that look like those of a free person. Without this, Jim has no ability to act freely, whether he recognizes himself as a person or not. Now, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that Jim wasn't a person the whole time, even if he believed himself to be property. But here is where we can call the existential philosophy kind of problematic. For the existentialist, the individual self is realized when he or she can make a free mental and physical choice for oneself beyond the influence of external constraint. And while Jim is, I guess, mentally free, well, is he, though? Can his actions begin to correspond to a mental choice in his own freedom? I guess he must be prepared to die basically immediately for such a thing, and I guess many did, and many who suffer social injustice today still do. But that doesn't seem very satisfactory in philosophical terms. It would be much easier if we came from a place of privilege in that sense, where the physical constraints of freedom weren't prevalent, allowing the person who recognizes his individual selfhood and make a choice to activate it can do so without the additional struggle of physical slavery. So while the existential philosophies of the modern age were becoming attractive to a privileged class, there were also minority movements swirling as well. Possibly one of the most well-known was the Harlem Renaissance, which runs parallel to the 1920s materialistic flourish. In this overflowing section of the city, African-American art, dance, theater, history, uh, music, and literature all take on their own identity, 
and even had significant influence on the dominant culture of the time as well. Well, Perhaps the assimilations and maybe even some cultural appropriation of that time, that could really be its own subject of ethical debate, and I'm probably not in proper position to do that myself. Uh, Maybe for another time. Well, probably better suited for a different speaker. But the Harlem Renaissance connects deeply to the Great Migration, in which those free individuals in the rural South begin moving north to cultural and economic hubs like New York, looking for better financial, social, and intellectual opportunities. And while much of these kinds of movements come with a wide-eyed idealism, I mean, if you haven't seen the musical Ragtime, you really must. There's a perfect example in a song called Success that's sung by an Eastern European immigrant named Tate, who sings, Here in America, anyone at all can succeed. Do what you do, and the world will come to you guaranteed. They're generally followed by a disillusionment that comes with the recognition that no place is perfect and injustice exists everywhere. But this discouraged people, for sure, in the same way you see it discouraged the privileged class seen in Gatsby and the fact that his self-made wealth still makes him second class to the long-held traditional families of wealth on East Egg. And so many Harlem Renaissance talents used their abilities for the causes of civil rights, and it became kind of the undercurrent that swelled that movement. Many important African-American artists are credited with these movements, like the artist Jacob Lawrence, uh, the musician Duke Ellington, whose cotton club might have been the center of it all, Musicians Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith, and poets like Claude McKay and, of course, Langston Hughes. Now, Toni Morrison is a contemporary writer. She was not a slave, and I don't believe her parents were either. She was born in 1931 in Ohio, though, so her young adult life was certainly ingrained with the influence of the Harlem Renaissance and the Civil Rights Movement. And there were certainly atrocities that her family faced, witnessing lynchings, separate but equal legislation, and even having their own house set fire to while they were inside it. Her family was a strong unit, though, and their collective attitude toward personal injustice was a general view of absurdity. She knew her heritage, she'd read the stories, and was fascinated by typical African-American ghost stories, which is what you see Beloved based on. And in a lot of ways, Beloved was also based on a true story that Morrison had come across in the process of researching for another book that was called The Black Book, and it's a culmination of a lot of those elements. And while Beloved came later in her career, it wasn't published until 1987, well after the Harlem Renaissance, well after the institution of abolition and slavery, and even after civil rights were granted, but it's still very much a part of that tradition. There are similarities in the style, similarities in the messaging. So I think today I'd like to do something a little bit different. There are a few things in the week section of Beloved from chapters 9 to 14 that are definitely worthy of discussion, but I think I'd like to do this in a little different style. I'd like to specifically focus on the current intersection of those individual narratives of Paul D., Seath, Denver, and Beloved, but I'd like to begin each section with the first a Harlem Renaissance poem to share with you some of the fantastic things that were written and see if there's maybe a thread that can be built here. See, there he stands, not brave, but with an air of sullen stupor. Mark him well. Is he not more like brute than man? Look in his eye. No light is there, none, save the glint that shines in the now glaring and now shifting orbs of some wild animal caught in the hunter's trap. How came this beast in human shape and form? Speak, man. We call you man because you wear his shape. How are you thus? Are you not from that docile, childlike, tender-hearted race which we have known three centuries? Not from that of more than faithful race which 
through three wars, fed our dear wives and nursed our helpless babes without a single breach of trust. Speak out. I am. And am not. Then who? Why are you? I am not a new thing. I am as old as human nature. I am that which lurks, ready to spring whenever a bar is loosed. The ancient trait which fought incessantly against restraint balks at the upward climb. The weight forever seeking to obey the law of downward pull. And I am more. The bitter fruit am I of planted seed. The resultant, the inevitable end of evil forces and the powers of wrong. Lessons and degradation taught and learned. The memories of cruel sights and deeds. The pent-up bitterness, the unspent hate. Filtered through fifteen generations have sprung up and found in me sporadic life. In me the muttered curse of dying men. On me the stain of conquered women. And consuming me the fearful fires of lust lit long ago by other hands than mine. In me the down-crushed spirit. The hurled-back prayers of wretches now long dead. Their dire books quests. In me the echo of the stifled cry of children for their battered mother's breasts. I claim no race. No race claims me. I am no more than human dregs. Degenerate. The monstrous offspring of the monster. Sin. I am. Just what I am. The race that fed your wives and nursed your babes would do the same today. But I... Enough! The brute must die. Quick! Chain him to that oak. It will resist the fire much longer than this slender pine. Now bring the fuel. Pile it around him. Wait. Pile not so high, fast or high, or we shall lose the agony and terror in his face. And now the torch. Good fuel that. The flames already leap head high. Ha! Hear that shriek. And there's another, wilder than the first. Fetch water. Water! Pour a little on the fire, lest it should be burned too fast. Hold so. Now let it slowly blaze again. See there. He squirms. He groans. His eyes bulge wildly out, searching around in vain appeal for help. Another shriek, the last. Watch how the flesh grows crisp and hangs, till turned to ash, it sifts down through the coils of chain that hold erect the ghastly frame against the spark-scorched tree. Stop. To each man no more than one man's share. You take that bone and you take this tooth, the chain. Let us divide its links. The skull, of course, in fair division to the leader comes. And now his fiendish crime has been avenged. Let us back to our wives and children, say. What did he mean by those last muttered words? Brothers in spirit, brothers indeed, are we. This is Brothers American Drama by James Weldon Johnson. After the escape from Sweet Home, planned and executed by Seath and her husband Hal, Paul D. was sold off by school teacher to another man called Brandywine, who must have been evil enough Paul D. went wild enough for an attempted to kill him. So that landed him in a chain gang in the middle of Georgia. In Chapter 10, Paul D. tells the story of this whole dehumanizing part of his past. Paul D. and 45 other slaves each night in their own coffin-sized boxes called living quarters, each with shackled wrists and a single chain running through blinding at each one of the legs during the day and night. Each movement would invariably be felt by everyone on the chain. Kind of this weird amoeba, a symbiotic relationship. Each worker must work in tandem. They must walk in tandem, eat in tandem. 
One's failure, a weak link, is a failure to all. During the day, they use sledgehammer to break up stone. The motion itself becomes somewhat of a catharsis for them, a meditation on regular action. But man, oh, how he describes this. And they beat. The women for having known them and no more, no more. The children for having been them, but never again. They killed the boss so often and so completely that they had to bring him back to life to pulp him up one more time. Tasting hot meal cake among pine trees, they beat it away. Singing love songs to Mr. Death, they smashed his head. More than the rest, they killed the flirt whom called, folks called life for leading them on. Making him think the next sunrise would be worth it. That another stroke of time would do it at last. Only when she was dead would they be safe. The motivation here, the metaphor of beating up and killing life and moving from an attempt or at least a desire to live to just sheer existence. It's just heartbreaking. Paul D. was at this for 86 days. Probably a relatively short time frame compared to many. Uh, but here is Paul D. describing life for him as dead. Paul D. beat her butt all day every day till there was not a whimper in her. 86 days, and his hands were still, waiting serenely each rat-rustling night for a high at dawn and the eager clench of the hammer shaft. Life rolled over dead, or so he thought. On day 87, though, a massive storm rolls in and nearly drowns every slave in their coffin. I say coffin because it's basically a coffin, at this point especially. I can't even imagine this, buried alive by the mud. So they communicate and coordinate exclusively by a kind of twisted Morse code at pulling of their uniting chain. So they unbury themselves and stalk away in the night, even running into the safety of another mistreated minority, a sick tribe of Cherokee Indians, who essentially help them get all separated and then run. It's here that Paul D. starts the run. Well, the rewinding never really stopped, actually. This is his past. It's ugly. It's unfathomable. Incomprehensible. In the present, he seems to desire to stop the run. He wants to stay with Seethe. But the current situation is getting out of hand. And by situation, I mean specifically Beloved, whose overbearing protection and possessiveness of Seethe has begun to push him out of the house, much the way that his arrival at 124 pushed out the baby ghost. It's been a struggle ever since. Fortunately, though, Seethe forces him back into a room, which may help alleviate the situation... But even then, there's still some distance to deal with. A woman with a burning flame, deep covered through the years with ashes. Ah, she hid it deep and smothered it with tears. Sometimes a baleful light would rise from out of the dusky bed, and then the woman hushed it quick to slumber on as dead. At last, the weary war was done, the tapers were alight, and with a sigh of victory, she breathed the soft good night. Smothered Fires by Georgia Douglas Johnson We still don't have a full understanding of Seed's situation at all, but some pretty horrific hints are dropped in these chapters. Seed ran from Sweet Home after her children had been taken to 124 ahead of her, the two boys, Howard and Bugler, and the girl who doesn't yet have a name but is still nursing, so she's young enough at that rate. Seed and Hal were supposed to meet up at some point, 
uh, but heavily pregnant with Denver and struggling to survive, Seath has to make it on her own. We get Denver's birth story earlier on when Seath is discovered by a white girl named Amy Denver, for whom Seath named the baby, who helps her deliver a far too early baby girl and then sets her back on her broken way. Seath eventually gets to 124, which is already occupied there by baby Shugs, which is Seath's husband's mother. Shugs is the only person in the story outside of Denver to experience legitimate freedom. Hal was able to buy her it for her from the owners of Sweet Home before the days of school teacher and sent her north. 124 at the time of Seath's arrival is something of a halfway house. People come and go from the house, taking what they need in the form of food and shelter and even company, but never too much. They never told too much of their stories. They never leave too much of themselves. A common refrain that we see in earlier episodes and see the discussion of her mother and Paul D's discussion of the healthy distance that must be maintained in love and slavery. When she first arrives, Baby Shooks takes immediate care of her wounds. The flaying of her back, the tree of scars that she shows Paul D in earlier chapters in present time, is still very fresh and bleeding, which horrifies Shugs in early, uh, as so she covers her mouth, but she doesn't say anything. It's a weird mix of surprise without being surprised. So she fixes up her feet, she covers her up, makes her a, f a fresh, clean dress, and washes her from the stains of all of her way-too-recent pregnancy. She then hands her both of the baby girls, Denver, way too early to be alive but somehow alive, and the other baby girl who isn't even a year old yet, both of whom are still being breastfed, which is natural. In fact, it's for the baby girl without a name that Seath is almost desperate to reach the entire separation of time. Because the body produces breast milk on its own timeline and babies eat pretty regularly, she's constantly alluding to both the physical pain of being engorged, while at the same time the mental pain of not being able to provide for the baby who's away from her. I honestly really hate talking about this bit. It's super uncomfortable to me, both as a mother and a woman, and desperately so as a human being. We actually get a full picture of it back in Chapter 7, but I wasn't really ready to discuss it then. Not yet. We find out that after the children were packed up and shipped off to 124, as Hal and Seath were getting ready to run, Seath is cornered by school teachers' nephews, she's held down, and they steal her milk from her. I, I, I can't honestly put it into words, and I really don't want to. This whole episode makes me physically sick. I hope I don't have to spell it out any more than the euphemism there, uh, but like a cow, they milk her right there in the barn. What she didn't know, though, is that Hal was there to see it, up in the barn, churning butter. Paul D. is the one to tell her, after he puts the whole thing together. Shortly after Paul D. had found Hal smearing the butter all over his face and looking totally crazy. Seath is pretty furious about this and takes it out on him for a minute, questioning why on earth her husband didn't jump down to come to her safety. And it's here you have to go back to that initial discussion of existentialism. For the privileged class, injustice is something you can stand up for. It might cost you your life, granted, but it's on the back of courage and dignity born from being treated as a human being your whole life. Here is Seath, being milked like a cow. Milk meant for her baby. Milk that gives life. And her husband is seeing it all go down, and what can he do? He jumps down, they're both killed, and then where does the milk go? Wasted there, too, and now you've got a bunch of orphans and a dead baby in her belly as well. He's a slave. 
He has no externalized dignity. It's been taken from him time and time again. Seath calms, realizing the expectation she initially had is a crazy one. The injustice is just too great. In fact, she wished she'd gone the way of hell. But her brain was not interested in the future. Loaded with the past and hungry for more, it left her no room to imagine, let alone plan for, the next day. Exactly like that afternoon in the wild onions, when one more step was the most she could see of the future. Other people went crazy. Why couldn't she? Other people's brains stopped, turned around, and went on to something new, which is what must have happened to Hal. And how sweet that would have been, the two of them back by the milk shed, squatting by the churn, smashing cold, lumpy butter into their faces with not a care in the world. How horrible it is to think that memory, that wit and consciousness, is the curse. But it must be for a circumstance like this that haunts like that. The images of closing up are consistent both here and her in the mind, and as well with Paul D. in the heart, which he calls the rusty tobacco tin where he stores all of his shameful memories. It was some time before he could put Alfred, Georgia, 6-0, schoolteacher Hal, his brothers, Seethe, Mr., the taste of iron, the sight of butter, the smell of hickory, notebook paper, one by one, into the tobacco tin lodged in his chest. By the time he got to 124, nothing in the world could pry it open. But unfortunately, all of it is being pried open. For C, that's Paul D. He's the one that brings it back. For Paul D, it's somehow beloved, but I think that might also be metaphorical. It's seethed by proxy. Seethe, whose past holds some other dark truths only hinted at to this point, but it's those which bring it about for Paul D as well. They force him out the same way that the ghost forced others out of 124. Although that's probably misunderstood too. It's not the ghost that keep he keeps people away. It's Seethe. It's the choices she made, the actions she took, and the luck it brought on. All of that is manifestly viewed as the ghost, but like I've said before, you can read the ghost as a metaphor for it all, and it's still get it right here. After all that, Seath somehow lived. She got 28 days of being real, complete, free human being at 124 before that was taken from her. My what and how is still a mystery to us, but her description of those 28 days. Seath had had 28 days, the travel of one whole moon of unslaved life. From the pure, clear stream of spit that the little girl dribbled into her face to her oily blood was 28 days. Days of healing, ease, and real talk. Days of company, knowing the names of 40, 50 other Negroes, their views, habits, when they had been and what they'd done. Of feeling their fun and sorrow along with her own, which made it better, bit by bit, at 124 and in the clearing, along with the others, she had claimed herself. Freeing yourself was one thing. Claiming ownership of that freed self was another. Again, the existential premise. Here, though, now we can actually maybe apply it. The physical freedom beyond slavery then gives her the space and allowance to make the personal choice for herself. And that was never available to her before. But only 28 days. It's pretty quick to make that kind of selfhood. To fling my arms wide in some place of the sun. To whirl and to dance till the white day is done. 
Then rest at cool evening beneath a tall tree when night comes on gently, dark like me. That is my dream. To fling my arms wide in the face of the sun, dance, whirl, whirl, till the quick day is done. Rest at pale evening, a tall, slim tree, night coming tenderly, black like me. To fling my arms wide in some place of the sun, to whirl and to dance till the white day is done, the rest at cool evening beneath a tall tree, what night comes on gently, dark like me. That is my dream. To fling my arms wide in the face of the sun, dance, whirl, whirl, till the quick day is done, rest at pale evening, a tall, slim tree, night come tenderly, black like me. Dream Variations by Langston Hughes Paul D. was a slave. Seath was a slave. Baby Shoulds was a freed slave. Howard Bugler, the unnamed baby, all children slaves. Even if she, the specifically the youngest one, didn't really remember it. Denver? Not a slave. A second-hand slave, though. Not untouched by the slavery of her mother and in a lot of ways unfairly characterized by it. Here, the existential premise is also unjust. Denver's days at 124 were always unaware. Too young to know anything that had happened, Denver's childhood was naive, but lonely. And because she had no reason to understand the loneliness, it's really kind of tragic. In Chapter 9, she tells the story of having gone for a little while to an informal school where she was physical and mentally gaining her freedom. This is robbed from her. Though... <sighs> It's by a social stigma, though, that's not even really hers to bear. It was Nelson Lord, the boy as smart as she was, who put a stop to it, who asked the question about her mother that put Chalk, the little eye, and all the rest of those afternoons hold, out of reach forever. She should have laughed when he said it, or pushed him down, but there was no meanness in his face or his voice, just curiosity. But the thing that leapt up in her when he asked it was the thing that had been lying there all along. She never went back. This traumatic incident and the surrounding uncertainty of it all, coupled with the fears shown by everyone in town, the stigma of 124, and the physical manifestation of a violent baby ghost, it all forces Denver into her own enclosure. But unlike the others, it's an external enclosure at this point. Paul D's enclosure of his memories is externally motivated, but it's internally chosen. Seeds is the same. Denver's isn't an action of her own choosing, so she in a way represents kind of the opposite extreme of the slavery. It's not a physical slavery of herself, but stigmatized by the history into the limitations, forced into an enclosure of the truth without certainty of it or an understanding of it, but every decision of hers will carry forward the past in its own form. The baby, though violent, was the one touch she had with the world outside of her and her mother. When Paul D. came and it disappeared, she was lonely again and resentful. When Beloved took its place, she became obsessive and fearful and a resulting kind of submissiveness. But each of the characters in this section reached the early stages of their moment. Kierkegaard, also an existentialist, provides us maybe a better point of reference for the existential struggle as relevant to these lives than maybe the absurdists do from a position of greater privilege and significantly less social injustice. For Kierkegaard, the self is an inwardness, a relation to itself, a mental act in the face of existential crisis. This moment, as Kierkegaard calls it, is the insistent call of the paradox of the absolute. 
It forces each to reckon with himself and to make a leap of faith beyond the material, beyond the universal order of human laws, and for the individual by the individual. Seath, in remembering her stories, recognizes she wants a future with Paul D. It's almost as if baby Shugs, who she revered as a mentor and as the mother to her husband, and in a lot of ways to herself, needed to grant her permission to let go of the past and move forward without hope in it. Of course, it's really just herself that needs forgiving and permission from herself, but sometimes we have to externalize things like that. Paul D is much trickier. In a very weird, sexually charged scene, Beloved comes to him and forces him to open himself. I don't really need to get into the details, but he uses the image of the rusted tobacco tin again, falling away to show a red, beating, real, alive heart. Fear and deadness kept it shut. Easier to cope that way, but feelings are messy, dangerous, scary, and they force us to be alive and to deal. Way harder than just being walking death. It's really Seath, of course, and her stories and the way his stories intertwine, the fact that their experiences are private, but because they speak a language that is known to them, to go back to our discussion of language in previous episodes, that give them something analogous enough to empathize. That's really only true of them. No amount of talking to Denver will get that kind of empathy that Seath receives from Paul D. As much as she loves Denver, she can't share that with her. This is threatening to Denver, of course, but at the same time, it's necessary for both the development of Seath and Paul D, and it's actually the only way we can get a future for Denver, either. Denver cannot free herself. Seath has to free herself first, which will then open it up for Denver's possibilities. It's a super unfortunate place to be stuck. But perhaps this breaking down of barriers is best shown in the slow destruction of Beloved herself a symbol of that wall between the past and future that is the present arresting moment. Paul D. and Steve as occasions for each other's forgiveness and moving forward. Denver comes to recognize that when Beloved seems to almost force Joker from out of nowhere, and Denver starts to see that the threat is her, not Paul D., have given the choice for Beloved and her mother. It's not a question in her mind at all. And here, Denver starts to get a sense of the necessary distance and what's really going on here. This leaves Beloved and an odd man out for a minute. Symbolically, in the weird little snippet that's chapter 14, Beloved pulls out a tooth. Beloved looked at the tooth and thought, this is it. Next would be her arm, her hand, a toe. Pieces of her would just drop, maybe one at a time, maybe all at once. Or on one of those mornings before Denver woke and after Seed left, she would fly apart. It is difficult keeping her head on her neck, her legs attached to her hips when she's by herself. Among the things she could not remember was when she first knew that she would wake up any day and find herself in pieces. She had two dreams, exploding and being swallowed. When her tooth came out, an odd fragment, last in the row... She thought it was starting. But it's definitely not over yet. Making big decisions, like moving on from trauma, are far more, <laughs> far from easy. Seath may not be ready, and Beloved works pretty hard to continue to sow the discord. Just when it looks like her and Paul D can have some fun and go out in the snow and play, Seath sees Beloved coming toward her and the doubt begins. Paul D's question asking her to have his baby, while an attempt for him to move forward and make something of his own, 
becomes for her a trap. No. He resented the children she had. That's what. Child, she corrected herself. Child, plus beloved, whom she thought of as her own. And that is what he resented. Sharing her with the girls. Hearing the three of them laughing at something he wasn't in on. The code they used among themselves that he could not break. Maybe even the time spent on their needs and not his. They were a family somehow, and he was not the head of it. She knew she was building a case against him in order to build a case against getting pregnant, and it shamed her a little bit. But she had all her children she needed. If her boys came back one day and Denver and Beloved stayed on, well, it would be the way it was supposed to be, no? She forcefully doesn't make room for him, even if she wants to. Is it fear that drives her? Some mystical power of Beloved's that's making her do so? Is it the past still driving a wedge? The honest truth hasn't been revealed, remembered, discussed, made sense of, recovered, or dealt with. She's not there yet. Not ready. It seems like every time we see a glimmer of hope in this, one step forward, two steps back. But the balance will have to be there, and the ethicality of the memory. Remember, memories can help heal, or they can destroy. This one she's buried in her closed-off self is a doozy. And the thing with memories, too, and hopes and failures and all the rest is the capacity to destroy not just one, but all others it touches. Seethe will have to be careful here, because not only is she at stake... But she doesn't want Paul D. or Denver or Beloved to be collateral damage. And they're all teetering close to the edge here. But there is hope. A familiar refrain of the Harlem Poets. So I leave you with this one. Langston Hughes, Let America Be America Again. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream that dreamers dreamed. Let it be the great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. Let any man be crushed by one above. Never was America to me. Oh, let me, my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man, driven from the land. I am the immigrant, clutching the hope I seek. And finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog dog of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man, full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the way of satisfying needs, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today. Hope pioneers. 
I am the man who never got ahead. The poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world, while still a serf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone and every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today? The millions shot down when we strike? The millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay, except a dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, and the land that never has been yet, and yet must be. The land where every man is free. The land that's mine. The poor man's. Indians. Negroes. Me. Who made America? Whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me an ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again. America, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the wreck and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of those great green states, and make America again. Make. Choice. We do keep coming back to that one here. It's so strange to talk about so much choice here in a story about a lack of choice. But again, maybe the existentialists were right. Even with death, destruction, and suffering, there is freedom. It is the one thing all persons have, even if not recognized as such. Choice. It's the thing we can't help activating. Even if we activate it poorly, even if we fail to choose because we choose not to choose, which is a choice. The freedom, honestly, though, may not be in hope here for this story. Like the existentialist of the modern era may claim to it in this sense, hope is a problematic concept, because hopes are often misplaced, and when they don't happen, the reality crashes hard. We've seen it in a lot of literature, especially early modern literature. Fitzgerald's Gatsby hopes for a past that can't be recreated. Miller's Willie Loman hopes for reputation and recognition, which can't be done on a discount through shortcuts. It's not quite the same for Morrison's Seath, where the hope of a better tomorrow is in itself problematic. But the fact that Seath's situation is limited by far more than just her psyche. But yet being a slave to mind and body really leaves you in an impossible situation. I wonder if letting go, if putting it all out there, laying it all down as Baby Shugs told her, would give her a chance to hope. Her desires are not unrealistic certainly less unrealistic than the characters previously mentioned. But the situation is far more complicated. The justice just isn't there. And the responsibility for it is far more nuanced and interconnected and psychologically complex. I have no answers for this one. 
I honestly think that's the beauty of it. I can talk about dreams and hopes and realities, and my own ceiling is substantially different in shape and height and color, and it's an incomparable situation. For me to sit here and speculate Seed's choices, it's really not fair at all. What can I do except sit back and appreciate? I can't understand, but I can appreciate another human struggle, even if it's far from my own. Until next episode, maybe we'll get the full realization of the past. Hopefully this will give us a chance to move forward, too. Links to all the poems from today's episode, oh, they're so great, can be found in the episode's information. If you're enjoying the content, please subscribe. Uh, if you have questions or comments, go to the official Twitter profile for the podcast, at details and be a part of the broadcast. I'm Stacy Cabrera, and we'll see you next week.